Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast. In episode 4, we are talking to jazz flautist and composer Gareth Lochrane. Gareth, Hi, thank John. you so much for being here. Thanks for having it's, me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's uh, very early on a Monday morning. <laughs> I admire a man who can turn up at nine o'clock <laughs> on a Monday morning to do a, an interview. Yeah. Gareth Crane is, of course, one of the UK's leading flautists, jazz flautists, and a, um, a supreme composer <laughs> uh, in his own right as well. So it's great. Turn about a few tunes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Love the tunes. <clears throat> Gareth, um, I've got this written on my paper at the very top something in in excited letters that you're actually from Leek in Staffordshire. Yeah, that's right. Which is very close to where my parents live. Oh, really? Wow. Um, it's a stunning place. Where, where, where are your parents? Uh, they're in Cheshire. Oh, yeah. right. Which so, yeah, on the cusp between Cheshire and yeah. Staffordshire. And what's the other one? Derbyshire. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely out there. I yeah. drive up there when, when I'm around just to go and... Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's great. Get some fresh air. I was in a sort of, yeah, the sort of valley town of Leek. Yeah. Uh, and, and just a, a lucky generation of um, guys my age that were, that were into... Um, into art and music, and there's a whole load of us that kind of just just hung out a lot together and had had bands together. Um, and there'd, there'd always been a strong band tradition in, in Lee. There'd, there'd always been lots of rock bands and blues bands and, and jazz things. Mm-hmm. And my dad had always promoted gigs and played played gigs around the area too. So, so yeah, just a lucky lucky bunch of guys in our in our generation. And in the schools that that were in Leek and around Leek, there were lots of friends that were doing interesting things. So, what did you plan when you? Were um, I, I was doing, I was doing my first. My first way into playing was just um, I wasn't I wasn't any kind of child child star player or anything. I just had started playing at ten, um, and just just played happily playing classical grade grades on the flute, uh, and then I joined the school folk group, and that that, that was that was probably the the, the uh, a bit of a bit of a change because that was that was having to learn the tunes by by memory and and the whole thing of having six eight rolling rhythms and and all that all that stuff kind of kind of fed in there, and, and all, in the meantime my dad had always tried to make, get me to play standards all the tunes he was into. Uh, I'd grown up with the sound of my dad trying to teach himself to play. Uh, he was he was a great natural musician, my dad. But but he'd been trying to teach himself the puzzle of harmony all all the time I've been growing up. I had yeah. all the great records on, but also as much as that, my dad just playing four note chords on the piano and trying to play lines on the harmonica against it. So that that was a normal part of growing yeah. up, you know. But then, he was self taught. Yeah, he'd always he'd always done it since he was a kid, and he'd been really into uh, Toots the Almonds and, and Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder and uh, Benny Goodman and. Charlie Parker, and he, he, had, he had just tons of records of all different kinds of styles. Uh, I used to pick out records at home and ask, ask Dad about kind of, you know, who's on this record and who's this, who's this, who's this Paul Chambers on bass, who's that, and, you know, Bill Evans, who's that, you know, and, and he'd always have some kind of angle that he could, he could give me a few little tidbits of things to follow follow the path of, or try and get the family tree of the musicians kind of uh, together, you know. Yeah, you you had lessons. Did you pick up jazz lessons? At some, did you have? Yeah. Any oh yeah. So the so the folk, I was in the folk group, and then and yeah. then I joined the school jazz group on the back of that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and uh, and then and that and that was like this major moment. I, I was it was four, I was about fourteen, and I had this fantastic teacher at school, most inspirational music teacher at school uh, called Miss Ratcliffe, Kath Ratcliffe, and I, I wouldn't have done any of it without her starting the whole thing off. Really, she was the most inspirational person. Um, and, and we'd play Mood Indigo, Tiger Rag. Uh, Chattanooga Choo Choo, all all these just all these cool old tunes. And she'd write down a little simple kind of um, harmonic kind of structure for the tunes on the board, and we'd all go around the room, we'll play a solo each, and it was and it was, and God knows what it sounded like, but but I just remember I remember, I remember that feeling of uh, this just feels right, you know, this just the whole thing of improvising, and it, I felt like I felt completely fearless, and I just I just felt I had total self confidence in it, uh, as you do when you're sort of fourteen, fifteen, and you're you're the, the lone jazz kid at school. Um, and, and it just really hit me, you know. And uh, and then after that, I went to I went to a, a, an evening class, a jazz evening class in Stoke, with, with a great local musician called Chris Gumbly, uh, who was like a modern jazz sort of guru of of the of, of the whole area. 
um, he, had, he had his own jazz club in Stafford, and he ran this he ran this um, evening class, and he was an amazing saxophone player and piano player. And and now he's a big RB, ABRSM examiner now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just yeah, another really insp- inspirational guy. Yeah, so yeah, some key figures, you know. Yeah. Uh, so a combination of all that and playing with local funk bands and and uh, and playing, trying to work out standards with my mates, or playing in sort of um, JTQ inspired or Billy Cobham inspired funk bands mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the area. There's a few of those going on. Um, that seems to have stayed with you because you yeah uh, I haven't changed at all right <laughs> <laughs> you obviously set yourself up right when you were you don't change from formative years 15, 16 yeah, uh, yeah. you don't really shake it off I don't think it's true and if you just left it, if you learn to embrace that it's, it's okay <laughs> sure why not <laughs> I'm some 41 I'm the same <laughs> so it's a combination of all those things anyway yeah you know, sure. it some influences and there's, there's a great guitarist too that I had a, had a regular duo gig with Les Bolger, a Liverpool guitarist that would come mm-hmm. to Stoke every every Sunday evening, and we'd do like a duo gig, and he would he'd have some new standards. He'd say, "We'll learn this one for next time, learn these tunes for next time." And uh, so, by the time I got to college, I had a whole load of standards that I was I was really into playing, and, and that that gave me a good grounding of mm. just always beautiful tunes. Um, so, a mixture of things, and also a big band thing as well. There was a local big band, right. uh, which which was a big thing as well. Yeah, it was um, it was a guy called John Milner. He was a Manchester um, musician and then left that scene, started his own pub in the country in Hume End, a little village in the middle of nowhere, uh, and started his own pub and then and then got the, the bug for it again and then started um, his own big band rehearsing in the pub and then do a gig in the pub. And he'd be transcribing Mingus and Ellington, pulling the pints and then transcribing <laughs> at the same time. Um, and then he started his own pub and I played out, believe it or not, I played a second alto sax in that band uh, right. with, with a bit of flute. And... Um, and I wrote my first ever big band arrangement for that band when I was in the sixth form at school. And, and But he said it wasn't my tune, but he just gave me a Sinatra tune to mm-hmm. try and adapt for, for the big band with, with all the kind of lead lines there. And he said, yeah. just orchestrate this for the saxes and, and that this will be the, a tutty section for the whole band, mm-hmm. just try and voice it for the whole band. And do you still have that chart? I've, I've got it somewhere, yeah. It's yeah. all pen, penciled out. Do you, ever, do you ever whip it out for the band? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I should. Was, I think it was Big, uh, big Bad Leroy Brown. Yeah, that, that tune. Yeah, I remember. I remember this sort of the, just the, the the fear of just handing out those parts to these diehard pros, you know, these diehard Manchester pros. Yeah, and you go, is this going to work? You know, oh God, what, what is? What, what if it goes wrong? You know, and then it, and then it, it works out just about fine. And there's always little things you want to come next time. I'll change this. You know. Yeah. Um, but I learned so much just doing those first few arrangements for John just at school. Um, the, when I got to college, I was just I was just pumped for it. When I, when I met all all these mates at college my age playing jazz. And then this, and this is before Junior Academy and and all the Conservatoire, National Youth Jazz Collective scene, all that. None of that, you know. So you see, so you get to college, and that's the first, that's really the first time that you're really hanging out with guys your age that are as into it as you. Well, tucked away jazz scene in the um, middle of England. Well, well, yeah, it was, it was just it was just it was just latching onto key figures, you know, yeah. getting, yeah. playing with your mates, and then and then older figures that help you out. Mm. And just show you, show you a few things on, on the bigger the bigger picture at the same time. So you you went to the academy after yeah. that, met a lot of the people you're still playing with. Yeah, at the moment. yeah. I see them all. I see so many of them still. Yeah, yeah. It was a great generation of players. Yeah, it was it was amazing yeah. actually. Yeah, it was a really special time. You know, I came down to my student hall room with a, ba- a bag of tapes. You know, <laughs> so it's like another another era. Yeah. Um, and you're relying on your friends' tape and record collection, CD collections to sort of discover things. You know. Mm-hmm. A totally different time to now. It's it's not it's not better or worse. It's just it's just the way it was. And you um and 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 maybe maybe you personalise things in a different way when you're when you're sort of rifling through your, your friend's record collection. It's like who's this Joe Henderson? Who's that? Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many things I discovered through just um going through the, the Fishwick Brothers were in my in my year at college, yeah. and I'd be going through their CDs and tapes all the yeah. time and saying Tom Harrell, who's this? You know, Joe Lovano, who's that? Paul, Paul Motion. Yeah. You know, and and all these figures I, would, I, would, I wouldn't have discovered. Had they not been into it already? <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how do you find that that's changed? Now, you say you don't find it. You don't find the culture better or worse um, in terms of listening. You know, we've got Spotify and yeah. YouTube and everything now. Do yeah. You, do you feel like there's a, a palpable difference in? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, mean, I think in terms of seeing it through the through the guys that I teach, at, uh, yeah. especially Junior Academy, because they're the age where it's all just kind of just exploding at once for them when they're 15, 16, discovering it all at once. It's it's great because they've they've got they've got a they've got a way into all all these players and different styles at once. So so a nice result of that is that they can be really unprejudiced about styles and mm-hmm. and their writing can reflect that as well. 
But at the same time, I think I think they all know they've got to they've got to to progress. They've got to whittle down to something at some point mm-hmm. and, and focus on maybe one player or one era. <clears throat> and they'll do that naturally if they if they if they're honing their style down to a certain thing. They they all do that mm-hmm. if, if they're serious about it. And and then and then from that it just it just grows from that that sort of uh, kernel of sort of um, inspiration that you've got that one thing that makes you play mm-hmm. that reason why you play. That you have to you have to kind of keep that sort of uh, sacred for yourself. Yeah, just uh, keeping a discipline. Yeah, discipline to kind of to have have some influences that you come back to, and then and then and all get naturally build build on that. Uh, yeah, you know. But I guess I guess you you check in with lots of things, new things that are coming out. But at a certain point, you come back to those things that mm-hmm. drive you originally. So at the uh, the academy, well, you did pretty well early on, right? You um had some success at the Vienna Jazz Festival. All oh, right, yeah, we we put together a band that was based on a yeah. on our uh, year at college, basically. I mean, it was it was um, me, Oshan Roberts, and a great trumpet player called Henry Collins. And uh, Matt Fishwick, Tom Cawley, and Orlando Lefleming. That, that was the sextet. Uh, that, that was pretty much our year, uh, or a sextet built built from guys in our year. And and that 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 trip, uh, the Vienna trip, that was that was or Vienna, sorry, that was um, that was all through Ostia. It was it was a um, a kind of battle of the bands across Europe. And but each yeah. band had to come from a some kind of sister sister town to Vienna in Europe. Um, so so we had to all pretend that we were Welsh. <laughs> Wow, I mean, being called Gareth helped, helped a little <laughs> bit. Um, so I had to do the announcements in Welsh in, in this in this gig in the south of France. In Welsh, how's your Welsh? Terrible. <laughs> uh, wow. Thank you, Do- Docklin Val. Do- Do- I can't even remember. Oshana killed me if you heard me say that. Um, <laughs> Amazing. But it was, um, but it was, it was an incredible trip. Yeah, it was yeah. two weeks, and and um, and Oshan did a fantastic job of um, lining up uh, some some promoters out there that got us a run of gigs, a week or like a week of gigs, and, and then. See all the gigs in the festival as well. We saw Herbie Hancock's uh, new standard sextet with Schofield and Mike Brecker, and and nice. we saw we saw um, uh, Mickey Rocker play with uh, Hank Jones and Milt Jackson. Uh, but a whole a whole week of, of gigs yeah. in this this great amphitheatre. Yeah, I and mean, the Herbie gig especially that that was a, that was a clincher. Yeah, definitely. You're a big fan of his. Yeah, it's definitely. difficult not to be a fan of his. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. I'm unconditional, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Schofield. Yeah, and Brecker. Yeah. <laughs> And you were also finalist in Young Jazz Musician of the Year. <coughs> yeah, I suppose that was probably after you left. Yeah, that was. I think. I think I, I went. I went in for it one year, then and then got through to the final the next year. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine, the semi final, and then two thousand, I was in the final. Yeah, <coughs> well, it was, it was quite nerve wracking. They had like a the X marks the spot. You know, you, you stand there right. on your your little mark, and the, and the camera, this this huge crane camera, is circling around. And, yeah, but it was a great experience, yeah, and, and lots of guys I met on that on those things that I still play with. Yeah, Did you take a band. No, no, you do you do it with um, the house trio, which was right. which was John Christensen, right, and Dave Green on bass, so legends of the scene. Yeah, uh, one year it was Dave Barry and on drums, another year it was uh, Bobby Worth. Lovely guys, you know, yeah. and who've been you know around the block a few times and knew knew all the tunes and just lovely guys to to work with and and, and mm-hmm. just basically just playing two or three standards of your choice. I think it was just mm-hmm. two tunes, a slow one and a fast one. Yeah, <laughs> do you remember what you played? Um, I think one year I played um, Awesome in New York and uh, It's Alright With Me, I think. Maybe one year I played You've Changed, Song Is You, I think I did once. Yeah. I still play those tunes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean about kind of going back to those things that make you play. Yeah. You, you, you come, there are certain standards that are just part of you, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was a great experience. You know, a lot of the guys that I met on, on those, on those, on those uh, competitions I still play with. Yeah. Like Leon Greening and... And Robbie Robson and mm-hmm. um, uh, also a Scottish piano player called Paul Harrison. There was a he's, he's a great player. I did some stuff with um, with uh, Tommy Smith's Scottish National Jazz Orchestra a few years ago, and uh, Paul was playing piano for that. So it was great to yeah. hook up with him again. Yeah, yeah. Feels like quite a small scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that that, that core cool bunch are still out yeah. there doing it. Yeah. At the academy, you spent some time with Martin Speak. Yeah. Who's um, great teacher? Course, yeah. Incredibly well respected player on the scene. Yeah, he did a lot for me. I mean, yeah. I mean. Uh, I'd always loved his playing, and he actually was one of the guys that came up to play with my uh, <clears throat> my dad's jazz club. My dad ran a jazz club, and and where, where he taught in in Staff University. And he, Martin was one of the first guys to send him a a, a demo or an album and do a gig there. So mm-hmm. I sort of I knew, I knew he was playing really well already. But he was he was great for me at college. Um, I think I started lessons with him in the second year of college. I think at the time he was one of the few teachers that that I'd ever had that would deconstruct things to that to that extent. Demolish tunes down to the absolute core, core elements, and build them up again, and and go through exercises with you on the tunes, and and just teaching you how to how to how to manage your practice time and, and working on things properly, and like really thorough, you know, just painstakingly thorough. Yeah. But yeah, I I really enjoyed it. 
the art of practice, I guess. Knowing yeah. What to do, how to do it. And yeah, just 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 trying to just knowing 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 being honest with yourself about where you're at and trying yeah. to no matter where you've where, where you think you are, there's there's always some layer you can peel back and try and sort of deepen some part of your playing or mm-hmm. add, or, or broaden out the harmonic thing or, or you know rhythmic sense or whatever it is. And, and learning melodies by ear and the whole process of that yeah. is big on that. So you've taken on a lot of that in your own. Yeah, definitely. All all the things he showed me then, I still I mm-hmm. still do. Yeah, that's some great teachers at college. Eddie Parker as well. He was fantastic. Yeah, Artist. just great. Yeah. Um, I mean, with him, with him, it was um, I'd go around to his his house in Finsbury Park, um, and I, I was really hyperactive. I was just I was just I was just I was, I was just high on being in London, and, and uh, so I think I was probably just a bit of a pain in the neck as well. <laughs> but I'd, I'd turn up there at nine in the morning like, like today. And um, he'd, he'd come down, and he'd, he'd, he would he would have been out in Middlesex Uni the night before, and 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 he'd he'd turn on his, um, his his computer, he'd have his he'd have these fantastic demos of his tunes on Cubase that he'd put together, and so we'd often use those tunes as a basis for working things out, and, and he'd show me things he was working on, and 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 um, and he'd just say really useful, um, succinct things about my playing that mm. that that would never normally be said that bluntly, you know. He just said we'd be trading on a tune, then he'd just say to me. You do realise you just played exactly the same thing on the last chorus, or right. <laughs> or, or, or you know, just little things like yeah. uh, have you ever thought about using more lines with fourths and fifths, things like that. Just the yeah. things that you, when you're in the middle of it, you just think yeah. things that would just pass you by. These little, little, just tiny things that you just just stay with you. He's but, still playing, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. playing great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's and he's, he's he's based out in um, the New Forest, I think. Right, I think. Um, yeah, but I play. Yeah, yeah he's, he's as great as ever. Writing and playing, and just inspirational musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was the penultimate flautist with Becky Umsellico in this country. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, before you sort of. But that's when I, that's when I discovered his playing. Really, yeah. was, was through those records. Yeah, um, his his playing on Celebration was the was when I first heard him, and then, and then I've heard him later with Loose Tubes. Those records before that, but really, it's his playing on Celebration and the and the, and the Angola, especially the Angola solo. That, that was that was something that just kind of just hit me when I was. I was sixteen, and I was—I uh, mm-hmm. discovered Becky's music when it came out on those records, and I, I was in the sixth form at school, and that album came out. Um, that, that was a huge thing, and so melodic, and so so yeah. harmonically inside it, but with this and the articulation he's got is very particular as well. Um, it's very, very sort of punchy articulation, and and just beautifully melodic, like a real composer's um, improviser as well. He's, you can really hear him just mm-hmm. thinking in a, in, in a composer's sort of mindset yeah. when he's playing. Yeah, I need to check that track out. It's fantastic, yeah. And, and he, he said there was he went he went he went out to um to play some of Becky's music with some uh, South African musicians, I think, in somewhere in South Africa, I think Johannesburg or somewhere. And uh, and and the audience were singing his solo, his recorded solo. Really? <laughs> so he had no choice but to play. It. Uh-huh. But, but, but what a feeling! Yeah, the whole the whole yeah. this, this massive um, concert audience of chanting his solo to him. You know, yeah, incredible. I that shows you the melodic power of. Yeah. You know, yeah. I find that my personal taste in improvised music. It's often a good indicator when it's quite easy to get it in your ears and yeah. recall it and be able to sing along to it. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. There, should, there should always be something that you can remember about someone's solo. Yeah. So we'll come back to <clears> Becky because <throat> he's yeah, oh, a major there. major thing for yeah, me. Yeah, big yeah. part of your life. Your first album. Right. Okay. Uh, Grooveyard. Mm. Great name, by the way. <laughs> well, it wasn't. Well, it's before Google, so I didn't realise there were about twenty other Grooveyards out there. Yeah, I think <coughs> they're mostly kind of like groovy house producers, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, I had no idea. I, I, I didn't even Google it. I, didn't, I had no idea. Uh, I thought I had this great new name for a band. Yeah. And um, well, I'd never heard it before either. There's yeah. tunes called Grooveyard. There's, there's DJs, there's bands, there's record companies. There's even another Grooveyard in London I didn't know about. Oh, <laughs> it's that sinking feeling. But I thought, yeah. but I just thought, I just thought sod it I'm sticking to it so eventually I just called it Gareth Lockwain's Grooveyard like a, yeah. like a director kind of like John Carpenter's Vampires or something sure <laughs> uh, Put the Cat Out that was in 2003 <clears throat> um, I think we recorded it in 2002 I think. yeah yeah. And then, yeah that was, that was, that was, a, that was a really nice process to get to get to get to that making that because uh, just sort of backtracking a bit after college it, it took me a little while to kind of find my feet and um, also figure out where I was coming from again after college uh, so, so I, was, I was really in one of those kind of you know, you're just checking stuff out, and it's kind of re- it's like regrounding yourself after you're just out on your own again. Uh, I stayed in London, and you know, I was learning lots of tunes and transcribing a lot of solos and doing loads of practice and the whole the whole the whole thing. And then I met Alex Garnet. Um, I saw I saw him play at a gig at the Hundred Club, I think. I saw, it'd, always, it'd always been this kind of cult figure amongst all the horn players, but then when I heard him play, it was just uh, yeah, it's, it's just just the, the projection of it and the and the 
there's a certain sort of sleazy like old school kind of thing in his playing that just just kind of just just hits anyone who hears him I think but it just in just the attitude of it but he's got all of all the modern quirks he could ever want you know it's just just an astounding mix of uh, influences in his playing and and in his bypass music college too he, he never had any of that so he's got his own his own take on everything uh, so a real a really unique figure yeah. So so we had, we had lots of things in common that we were, we were just into. We were into um, Torrentine and Eddie Harris and uh, Wes Montgomery and Cannonball and all, all that stuff from the 60s that we'd all mm-hmm. grown up with. And so we just put together a band playing tunes that we liked. You know, it wasn't any with any grand plan. We just we just we just playing tunes. And then bit by bit, I, I started writing tunes. So I, I'd, I'd bring tunes along that I thought would suit would suit the group. And it was a really natural process. And then we had we had we had four tunes. Um, and we thought let's just go and rec- let's record it, and it was just in someone's garage. It was in it was in um, Colin Skinner's garage, the sax player Colin Skinner's garage. Right, that's funny. <laughs> and he, he said he had a kind of recording space, so yeah. so we did it there. Yeah. And uh, Chris Traves came in along with his laptop and recorded mm. it on his laptop. It was really like low lo-fi recording, but it was mixed really really nicely. Yeah. 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 And then, and then I had four tunes, and then and then the the slow tune on that record, slow burner, was just mm-hmm. was just like really last minute. I think the day before the recording, I, I wrote this tune that was like yeah. a slow bluesy tune that could do could just stick in there. It's beautiful that one. It, it came out it came out yeah. nicely, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that came out really well. Um, yeah, it's kind of fresh. For improvement, I haven't heard it for a long time, but <laughs> sure. but, but um, yeah, but um, yeah, but it seems, it seems to people seem to like it, yeah. And but a lot of it is Bill's um, Bill's illustration on the front as well. That's uh, I think it's great. These this light for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you should check it out because uh, there's a great version of um, Alex and Gareth on the front, yeah. It's um, it's a pretty good caricature, <laughs> he nailed it, yeah. And Bill's done my stuff ever since. Me, me yeah. and Bill were, were friends, Bill friends when we were kids, yeah, 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 incredible illustrator. And uh, I mean, me and Bill were, were childhood friends. Right. Our dad's taught illustrations together. So he he's from League as well. Yeah, yeah. He played he played trumpet back in the day as well. Um, and so he he was a great trumpet player, and, yeah. and we, we were we were like we were born in the same hospital two weeks apart. Right. And, and baby friends. Um, yeah. And we're still kind of best mates now. But with that with that cover though, um, uh, me and Alex had some 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 fairly sort of moody sort of band photos sort of done. You know, we thought we could be be these kind of hard ass sort of band leader guys. Right. And um, and and uh, I had this. Uh, that, that was intended to be the cover, like the oasis of the jazz world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's um, so a slightly good cop, bad cop. You know, I don't know. I don't know which is which. We we sort of take it in turns to be which. And then and then I gave Bill these photos. I was thinking, well, you know, this is probably going to be the cover. Just do something around this. Illustrate something around this. Because it was the album was going to be called "Put the Cat Out," so he started doing some just just for his own amusement, doing these funny sort of pictures of us from our moody band photos, <laughs> with with the cat thing in mind and. And I thought, actually, this this is much better. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> this this just suits the whole thing much better. Yeah. Um, You've stuck with him ever since. Then. Yeah, he's always done it. Yeah, and he's he's he's, he's super busy with his um, his illustrating work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now he's working for the New York Times and the and the New Yorker and the Guardian. And all, oh. all and he's he's managed to find a way of doing what he does. Um, and people employ him for what he for, for what he can do. Mm-hmm. He's not he's not answering to too many committees. I don't think. I think mm-hmm. it's a, sometimes underestimated the kind of relationship between recorded music and the artwork. Yeah, definitely. Especially in the digital age. Yeah, that's one thing that's been lost a little bit. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah. very sad. But at least we're having the vinyl revival. Yeah, yeah. Long may it last. Hey, hopefully, we'll do the do the big band as a uh, double vinyl. Yeah, that's the. I will be first in the queue. That'll, that'll be that'll be a little little way down the. Uh, maybe maybe in a few, a few months time, but it'll be after it's been released in. In September, we'll try and we'll try and look to doing a double a double record somehow. Yeah. Yes. That'll be a first for me. We'll talk about that. Um, we'll yeah, talk oh about yeah, the big band because obviously that's another mm. big part of your life mm. as well. Yeah. So on group this first Groovyard album, you playing with Mike Outram. Yeah. Which who's always present somewhere. Yeah, I'd always been, I'd been playing with Mike for a long time. I think yeah. the first time we'd we'd um, again, I think he was one of the guys that played in my dad's jazz club. He was slightly older than me. He was a Manchester guitarist at the time. 
I think I think I was sixteen and he was eighteen and he came to play at the club. Right. He came down with um with uh, I can't remember. Now. I think it, I think it was with a, a sax player called Jim Hunt, a great tenor player mm-hmm. uh, who does a lot of big uh, pop stuff now. But Jim Hunt is an absolute like inspirational musician. I don't know if many jazz guys know about know about him, but he's, he was a proper um, a really great player. He still is, but he used to do a lot more jazz things back in the day as well. You must have had a lot of people coming through. And my, dad, dad's my dad's club, club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every 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 week or fortnight there was a gig, and yeah, my dad had designed a series of posters for each season of gigs as well. And, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a good time. And, but I saw Mike, yeah, I saw Mike play, and he was slightly older than me. He was like this this sort of Manchester whiz kid guitarist, and he, and he came down. He was just yeah. as soon as I saw him play, I was like, that's that's the kind of guy I want to play with, you know. And a few years later, I got to I put together a few little gigs with him, and yeah. So we'd we'd always been mates. Yeah, yeah. He's got a great sound. Yeah. Astounding, and he can yeah. naturally sort of twist twist the timbre of, of his sound to yeah. to um, to fit different kind of different idioms or different genres, but we never but never sounds like he's putting on a certain hat. Mm. Ne- never just he's ever turning on the blues thing or turning on the yeah. kind of the Matheny thing or whatever. It's always just he's just he's, he seems to have naturally soaked up mm-hmm. um, all these different all these different sides of playing. He's just like a massive guitar nerd who's into all sides of it. <laughs> And then he'll, uh, he'll he'll just he'll just turn his hand to anything without without ever sounding like he's 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 yeah. um, contrived at all. Yeah, know? yeah, incredible musician. Yeah, it sounds great on this album. It sounds great on um, the other album as well, the, the later album. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. A few years after mm. two thousand and six, you did a masters mm. in film composition. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the film the film thing was. Uh, I think at the time it was it was it was something that I'd always been really into. Uh, just been a big film buff and always been just, just you know just checking out movies all the time. I've done mm-hmm. it since I was a kid. I think I just needed like a fresh creative outlet, something something just to just to do before it was before it was too late, you know. And then this uh, this course came up. I had friends that had, had done that course. I have a good friend of mine, Simon Whiteside, who we, we were living together at the time. He'd been through the course a few years before, and and he's and he was um, he, he was getting busy as an arranger and orchestrator, programmer for, for sessions. And composer, um, and he, and he recommended it. If he, if he said if you want to go for it, just yeah, just just dive in. And and, and it seemed like a really natural place to 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 um, to uh, be collaborating with non musicians. Uh, to to abandon the 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 jazz shorthand, muso shorthand that you develop with musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, none of that would would count for anything. And so you have to rethink how, how music's coming across because the whole the whole course was 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 built around making short films across departments it was an ex-film studio of the college right. so you, you're constantly in the process of making films especially in the second year of the course the first year is kind of preparation and the second year is just this avalanche of projects so you're making documentaries and animations and and uh, tv projects and and um and fiction films you know all short films are going to the festivals and stuff um, but it was a great time I'm, I'm really glad that i did it even though i haven't done so much with it since i finished i've been more kind of involved in family and 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 teaching and playing but but I, I needed to do do something like that just as a fresh, creative thing. Mm-hmm. I, I remember feeling slightly burnt out at the end of my twenties. Right. You know, just 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 the whole thing of just just jobbing around, trying to make a living in London, and I was teaching a bit and playing and whatever. But I, I needed I just needed a fresh burst of something. You know, um, it was around that time that I met Becky actually, Becky Mzeliku. So it was I had, I had all these things going on at once. Right. But it was. Uh, but I'm glad that I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I checked out a couple of the. F- Films that you scored, oh, okay. short movies. I haven't seen them for years. <laughs> yeah, um, stand up. That's very disturbing. That was, oh, yeah. it's absolutely horrible, but mm. brilliant. Yeah, of course, the music is only sort of beginning and end. I think it's quite, yeah. quite brief. Yeah. But... So we brought in Ross Stanley and Nick Smalley from the uh, yeah. same guys on the strut. Yeah, but they came in and did did the. Um, I sort of wrote, wrote out a little thing they could they could book mm-hmm. in with a with a sort of just just a really sort of um, low down and dirty sort of play, yeah. play on thing, you know. Yeah, um, there, there could be there could be sort of twisted in different tempos and, and it, it could be a kind of a it could be almost like a fun funky play on but it could be a really disturbing thing as well <laughs> sure so it has to be both yeah yeah um, I, yeah I watched two or three short films and I could still hear your roots in jazz okay. a little bit it's always there somewhere yeah more orchestral yeah. planet yeah did you end up writing a lot for strings yeah in the on the course yeah yeah, yeah there, was, there was a little budget for each film to bring in uh, string sections or whatever whatever yeah. whatever combination of things you thought would work yeah um, uh, so sometimes I could bring in a, a string quartet, or a, or sometimes I'd layer up things that I'd bring in a few brass players, wind players, and then track that up, or or track up the strings. You know, there was there was a very limited budget for the things, but you try and make it slightly more epic than mm-hmm. than, than than it seems at first. You know? Yeah. 
so yeah, there's, there's a bit of a lot, a lot of yeah, some scope for yeah for um, thinking big. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm waiting for the um, Garth Crane Strings album. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. Wouldn't yeah, I? yeah. Well, love... your arrangements that we did we did at the uh, Six oh, London yeah, Jazz yeah. Festival last year with Kate Williams and the the group sounded great. Oh, thanks. Really nice string parts. So obviously it was it was kind of adapted horn parts for that. Yeah, um, they they fit really well. But um, but I, I twisted them around a bit just yeah. to, obviously the phrasing things try and yeah try and make it work. The, the string quartet felt. Good. Oh, great. I'd love to do some more. Yeah, the big band plus strings, that could be the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Although I'm getting bigger and bigger, I'm going to have to do some kind of small, low maintenance thing first and then. Uh, yeah, don't, don't stress uh, yourself out too much. <laughs> Shortly after that, uh, 2008, mm. got your next, um, which is a different group, um, The Septet. Yeah. No Messing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Bit of a different album. Different yeah, it was, it was kind of. Um, uh, I think I think I've, I've been I've been writing the tunes before college. In fact, that all came out of um, the horrendous wrist injury that I had, right uh, in two thousand and four. I think. How did that happen? It was just it was just the idiotic drunken fall. Ah. Uh, <laughs> classic brandy sours in Cyprus. Right. Um, and I have no shame in admitting that. <laughs> Unless on record, now, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's good fun at the time. Yeah. Um, but um, I was on a, on a little jazz festival um, thing with with some London guys in 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 the Paradise Festival in Cyprus, and it was great fun, doing loads of playing and hanging out, uh, and it was just a silly silly drunken accident trying trying to lead a lead a, a bunch of guys down a hill in the dark in, in Cyprus. Uh, anyway, so they put me out of action for three months. So, yeah. so, so I wrote nearly all those tunes whilst being one-handed at the piano. Right. You know, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> That's why everything's in the bass on that album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one or the other, yeah. Bass, tune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything's stride. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful album. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm really glad how it came. I'm really pleased how it came out. Or somewhere I read that you were kind of exploring the the balance between through composed music and improvisation. Yeah, so a lot of it's quite sort of leading towards the big band yeah, sound. Definitely, but still yeah. with a lot of the kind of uh, jam session improvisation. Yeah, I guess I'd always try to. I mean, I, I've been for a while. I've been trying to do that kind of thing. I mean, um, I mean, it, I, it maybe sounds grander than it is on the liner notes, but but it was. I just wanted to get a uh, just the feeling of those. Um, Without trying to copy anything, but uh, there's there's a certain bunch of recordings from the sixties and seventies that I've always really been drawn to. The um, sort of five six horn recordings that that managed to have that have that free reeling sort of um, improvisation side was a, was a crucial part of it. The, the core soloist and and rhythm section thing was was always the th- always the main um, the the main focus of the music. But the um, but 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 the ensemble would just would just sort of generate this extra energy in the whole thing, and the, the, and the orchestrated. Um, side of it, Oliver Nelson and Thad Jones and Duke Pearson and the certain guys I've always been drawn to from that that era, and I, I still I still am drawn to it. You know, I still yeah. I, walk, I go through a record shop and I see a record that Oliver Nelson's arranged. I just have to get it, you know, no matter no matter what it is. Yeah, <laughs> and, he, and he did a few commercial like really commercial things in the late sixties, but I still have to get it just to yeah. see just to see what he what he do with these tunes. Do you know the um, Nancy Wilson Lush Life album? No, no. Which I think he or he, he is that him, is it? some of them. Oh yeah, well, on that. Okay. Yeah. Next on the list. Okay. Yeah, there's a lovely version of Midnight Sun. Oh, uh, okay. Well. Um, yeah, I picked that up. Yeah, I love that too. Also. I heard it. Yeah. So, yeah, so that with that record, it, yeah, it was just, it was just um, trying trying to trying to use the soloists what 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 they can do, you know, and, and write tunes with those guys in mind. Yeah. I'd already written the core compositions. They weren't arranging it when you got someone like Trevor Myers, who was just is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you want you want to you want to use them as best you can, and it, on that record he plays a lot of euphonium as well. So there was um, there was a mixture of both. Yeah. And Steve Calderstad's on that record, and it's just it's really nice that I managed to do a, a few recordings with Steve before he moved back to 
to Canada. He's mm-hmm. just a phenomenal tenor player. And I always felt like we had a we had a really nice kind of front line sort of sound, me and Steve. Playing yeah. with Kate Williams too. Right. Uh, with Steve. Yeah. I've found um, listening to your recordings in particular, I've been amazed by how well the flute blends with a lot of different instruments. Okay. It works really well with the tenor. And then yeah. and then also with the vocals when you've got Nia Lynn. Yeah. Some of them. I love playing with Nia. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of sits really well in lots mm. of different places. Mm. I mean, I've always tried to sort of blend, have a, have a have a fairly flexible sort of sound that you can. Yeah, that, that's been the aim anyway. I don't know if it works or not, but just just try and just try and um, be able to blend blend with different players. And I, I do love playing with tenor players in, in that. So it's, it all starts with Alex, really, and Oshan before that, mm-hmm. Oshan Roberts. Uh, just just trying to just trying to arrange for that, and and alto flute can sit below the the tenor, or, or just yeah. sort of sitting next to it, or the alto flute and tenor sax together, and just put in a, a complete unison is a really sort of a weird a weird extra sort of it's like another instrument. Yeah. And the bass flute as well, obviously that could be a nice kind of octaval unison thing with the with the tenor. And then when you got the flute or piccolo, that can that can that can be sort of just way above the tenor, and it'll still work. Yeah. In tenths or or, mm-hmm. or two octaves and octaves or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, so it's just fun. It's a fun combination to to write for, and to and to just be part of a group doing that. Um, so I always can't. Yeah, always. I mean, whenever I'm, I always come back to the flute and tenor sound. I love it. So it's like an oxivider. Yeah, <laughs> oxivider approach. <laughs> yeah, definitely works. I was going to say I love it when the the flute's kind of sitting below things. Yeah, it's it works really of... well. Yeah, that, that's partly inspired by um, Herbie Hancock and Speak Like a Child and right. the prisoner. Uh, the prisoner. What's it called? Yeah, sounds right. <laughs> it's like it's like the sequel to Speak Like a Child. Right, yeah. slightly bigger. I'm 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 not an orchestrator at all. I'm not a very good arranger at all. But I wouldn't think to put the flute below the tenor or similar. Well, it's, it's that it's that um that hit, that Speak Like a Child lineup yeah. is um it's it's um it's flugelhorn, alto flute, and bass trombone, and, and the alto right. flute is is that's the lineup for the whole recording. Yeah. And, and that's the most gorgeous record. And it, the yeah. trio is is featured right through, but the horns are just this extra. And just just the orchestrated colours they they bring mm. to the tunes around that. Who's that on flute on that album? It's uh, Jerry Dodgian. Right. He's mo- mostly known as an alto player. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the big influences on he's part of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis mm. legacy. He was a, he was the second alto in that with Jim Richardson, and then and then he was the lead player. Then Dick Oates was the next guy. And that, that's the loose kind of lineage of it. You yeah. Know? But so so Dick Oates is one of my heroes. It was yeah. kind of he's, he's connected to Jerry Dodgian. You had some lessons with him, didn't you? Yeah, in yeah. The States. I, I mean, he's, he's one of he's one of those guys that was um, uh, that I discovered through friends, tape collections at college, um, and then after college, I went to a, um, a summer school in Lake Placid with Oshan Roberts again and Matt Fishwick, yeah, um, and and Dick Oates was teaching on that mm-hmm. with Billy Hart and um, Jimmy McNeely. Jimmy McNeely was sort of the musical director of the whole thing, and Joe Lovano was there, and John Abercrombie and um, Tim Hagen's. It was just just an incredible uh, two weeks, and they got to meet Dick Oates. Yeah, and mm. uh, and I just just a, it wasn't wasn't like a, a, I had a lot of teaching from him, one to one teaching from him, but it was just just the whole thing of being around those guys yeah. and, and and just talking yeah. to them about uh, where they're coming from and 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 their their inf- the mix of influences and the New York scene at the time and and what they, what they've been through, and uh, and since then I've got to I had another lesson with him. Right. Um, a few weeks ago in New York when I was make, I was mixing the Big Band record yeah. in New York and I managed to get a hold of him and, yeah. and booked a rehearsal studio in Manhattan and we, we checked in again and you know it just yeah just the, the life he's had in music is just incredible mm. yeah it's nice to hear someone of your calibre saying I had a lesson with somebody yeah recently. well I mean he's I mean, the, but someone like that it's, it's like it's yeah. someone that you've always followed what they've done and um, it's, just, it's just it's just they'll always have some extra thing you can think about mm-hmm it could be it could be a really precise thing or some conceptual thing or, or sure. anything. Yeah. By this point that this album was released, you were already playing with Becky from Seleku. Yeah. Quite regularly. Yeah. So, how did that um, relationship come about? Um, well, I don't. I'd already known his music from when I was a kid, when when his, the albums came out, and Celebration in nineteen ninety two, and then and then Timelessness came out in um, ninety four. I think I'd just come to college and that album came out. So I knew I knew his music and and I've been really obsessed with it and it was one of those guys that I'd always recommend to my friends. So you've got to check this out. This is like this is this is a mix of everything. This is this is just the perfect kind of marriage of. There's a huge Coltrane McCoy Tyner influence there, but then there's also this township thing and there's classical influences and it's everything. Um, just just completely natural uh, composer. Um, Made it, made it seem that way anyway. Uh, just, just, and there's painstakingly written tunes, but just effortlessly melodic tunes. 
Um, and then later on, in 2000, uh, I'm trying to think, 2004-ish, there was a great club on the South Bank called Chino's, which lasted for about 18 months. And uh, and I was I was like the jam session ringleader every Wednesday night. Uh, I'd always put a quartet together. And Becky came down one night. He was just he didn't play. He was just there with with some friends. Uh, and and he, I couldn't help but notice him back of the room. So he was obviously going to say hello. Um, and then about a year later, I got a call from um, from uh, a great guy called Eugene Skeef, who who'd been a, always been a big support and help and a, a friend of Becky's. And Becky stayed in his house in the eighties and written a lot of these tunes that are now iconic tunes to me were written at, on, on Eugene's piano at his house when Becky was staying there and uh, I got a call from Eugene one morning uh, Becky wants to play we've got a rehearsal studio in Borough can you come down and, and, uh, and play he's, he's back from South Africa because he, he, he had a few years back out there in the early 2000s right. and, and he came back um, to, to, to try and try and restart his playing again um, so we got together that morning, I and mean, we we just kept playing since then. We had loads of um, really intensive duo rehearsals. I knew a lot of his tunes from the records, but then it was like relearning them from his his perspective. No music. He didn't read music. Maybe he did once. I think he used to. But then, but then this is all uh, just by ear, and mm-hmm. I'd, I'd video his fingers to get the voicings of the chords. I'd write down yeah. the tunes for him. He had loads of new tunes. He had loads of. Um, uh, well, he'd say there were a lot of them were old compositions from the seventies that he'd updated, or there were a lot of brand new things as well. So the 20 or 30 new compositions, you know, that no one had ever played. And so we were playing those in a, in, in a quartet, in a quartet form. We had loads of gigs at the 606. And we had, that, that was, Steve Ruby at the 6 was a big, <coughs> a big support. Uh, and we had a little quartet. Gigs, quartet right? so. Yeah, pretty much every month. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was at film school. That was my, uh, you know, I'd, I'd stay late at film school and practice all these Becky tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so it was, like, it was a nice, nice mix of um, like a polar opposite influences coming in at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a really special time. And before that, there was a quintet with Byron Wallen, which was more playing the tunes from his the records from um, from Timelessness and those things. But then later on, we had more and more kind of duo gigs, duo concerts, and, and quartet gigs, playing all these new things. Yeah. So so a new a new album was was kind of in the pipeline. It was it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, but then unfortunately, he had he had, he had all kinds of health ups and downs. And mm-hmm. you've been his biggest um, champion in his country since then, I'd say. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've just tried to keep it, keep yeah. it, keep it alive, really. Yeah. Uh, and with and with teaching, I've always tried to do his tunes with 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 uh, my, my teaching junior academy. I mean, the the kids on that course, they they love his tunes, uh, especially the ones that were undiscovered tunes, ones ones yeah. that on, only yeah. I've played really. That that they they're discovering these 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 little kind of gems and the unheard of gems, unrecorded things. Um, yeah, I first heard of him from you. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I always talk about him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's just yeah one of those yeah it's just one of those figures that I think is uh, he's one of the great writers and incredible he was, he was a fantastic saxophone player as well as mm-hmm. well as piano player um, so really really sort of visionary musician who, who combines so many things together. Well, do you have it in mind to do more of these kind of Becky tributes in the future? Uh, well, I've got that. We did that one thing with the octet thing with, yeah. with, with the, was it four or five, five horns? I'd love to do that again. Um, and one thing we're talking about eventually is to do. I, I was talking to Eugene a few weeks ago. Eugene Skeef, the same guy who put us together, um, about trying to do um, some kind of either an online archive of, of his of his music, or, or I'd really like to publish a book, a proper book, uh, with 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 notes on the tunes and 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 proper lead sheets or kind of sketches of the tunes, or yeah. a bit like the Mingus. There's a great Mingus book called More Than a Fake Book. It's just, it's just like a proper life life story in one book. I'd love to do that somehow, but um, the publishing stuff is all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's so many, been so many record right. labels involved in it. So there's a bit, there's a bit of that to deal with. Yeah. But, um, and, there's, and there's loads of great. Um, there's like a new run of uh, South African pianists uh, who are really influenced by Becky, mm-hmm. and we've been talking a little bit with those guys too. So uh, phenomenal musicians who are writing in a way that you, you can't help but hear that that influence coming through. Yeah, it's a mixture of the South African traditions, but with but with all, all the jazz influences in there too, and, and the contemporary yeah. influences and everything. Yeah. Um, there's one guy called Bacani Dyer who's absolutely fantastic. You can really hear it with him. He's got the he's got that. There's a certain attack and a, a rhythmic thing in his playing that, that you can really hear the Becky thing. Mm. So there's a whole run of kind of the guys are in their kind of thirties, late twenties, thirties, and you can really hear that he's like this cult figure. Yeah. Since he died in 2008, his influence has been more and more kind of common. Yeah, I find when you when you speak about Becky, you talk about this kind of how he would write these incredibly simple tunes which below the surface have a lot going yeah. on which are a real roast for the players yeah yeah i think 
in my experience with your music, it's kind of maybe a similar idea. Maybe. Actually. You've yeah, got a lot yeah. of catchy tunes. It's very palatable for oh, anybody, cool. but they're not easy to play, I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm sure there's an influence there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, always, always Sam's playing, playing Becky's things. You'd have all, all the audience would be singing the tunes, especially if there was um, like a lot of musicians from, from the, from the, from the Jazz Warriors days. What, one, one night at the 606, um, uh, he was there. I think the, the Joseph brothers were there and Steve Williamson and, Mondaisy, uh, loads of those guys all came down, and they knew all the tunes, and they're all they're all they're all chanting the tunes, like singing all the melodies, and the musicians are sweating it out on stage, trying, <laughs> you know, trying to make it work. But the, but the tunes are so accessible, yeah. And people get up and dance to these kind of the, the grooves of these tunes, but the, the, but these tunes have got these these crazy kind of little five eight bars chucked in, and <laughs> but, but people just know because the melodies are so strong, yeah. you can just dance to the melodies as, as if it was a Hungarian folk playing yeah. five. And, you know. it doesn't feel strange. No. no. Yeah, and that tune Angola is is is, is yeah. immense, um, with all these different crazy sections to it. And with Becky, it was it was unashamedly expansive, epic tune writing. Um, the intro could be like any; like it is basically a tune, <laughs> right. and then and then there could be three, four other other kind of sections to it. it would just build and build, but naturally build in a way that would kind of arrive somehow back at where it started. And uh, not always, but a lot of the time, it would just organically just come back to that original point. It's mm-hmm. like we've arrived back at the home base again. Yeah, Angola's like that, but it just there's there's always some there's always some golden hook at the heart of every, every one of Becky's tunes as well. There's there's, there's something there's something in there. There's, there, there, there there's, oh, that's a tune that goes like this. There's there's some some magic kind of phrase yeah. or hook that's part of it. Yeah, uh, but underneath that, the the and one one thing he was really big on was. Uh, Augmented relationships and, and and expanding on giant steps and the Coltrane legacy of that that whole that whole thing. He's probably done more than anyone else, I think, to 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 build on 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 the harmonic potential of that of that world. You know, so mm. many of his tunes work on transposing things around in yeah in, in major thirds and building on that. You know, as a basis for for writing. Like he's yeah. done so many tunes built on that on diminished relationships or augmented relationships. I, I can't think of that. I can't think of anyone else that's done it as much as obsessively. So I think I think yeah I think he's he's one of the really important guys, and and he, and he was so naturally he just we, one time he came to my my place to rehearse another sort of duo rehearsal, and I had a Bud Powell DVD just on uh, and uh, and he just sat there watching it he watched the whole thing about three times, uh, and then he sat on the piano and he just knew all the tunes he just sat down and play play all the tunes like it was nothing and and just and just improvise, uh, just channeling Bud Powell through 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 his own thing and yeah. and it just would naturally just soak things up you know. Yeah, um, and then uh, yeah, he was just one of the, one of those guys. The closest I've ever been to it, to a, to to this just walking the tightrope uh, yeah. kind of figure that was um, he, he could he could have horrendous lows and then and then when he was flying, it's just like playing like an angel, you know. And also, also the whole the whole thing of being around one of your heroes, but having to be a, a bit of a support for him at the yeah. same time, it was it was it was it was. Um, it stops you putting anyone on on a pedestal, you know. Yeah, right. they're just they're, he's just the guy trying to make it work. Mm-hmm. There's a track on uh, your most recent album. I say most recent, it's 2012, called one for Becky. Oh yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I've heard the big band play as well. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. I adapted that. Yeah. Yeah, which is a lovely tune. So this album, the strut again, back back to Grooveyard mm-hmm. and uh, Gareth Lecrae's Grooveyard now, Grooveyard yeah. Point Five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again with great artwork. Um, yeah, building the a classic. Same theme. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. This was a different lineup, slightly different lineup of the group. Um, Ross Stanley yeah. uh, taking over from Pete Whitaker. Yeah. Nick Smalley taking over from Tom. Uh, Tom Gordon did that first album. Tom Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Nia Lynn, of course, guesting on a few of the tracks. Yeah. So me, Ross, and Nia were kind of were basically Nia's trio. Banal. Uh, Banai. 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 I think it's Banai. Yeah. You I'm glad, say I'm Banai. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. Um. <laughs> So yeah. it, it seemed that she overdubbed her parts on those tunes. It was yeah. it seemed that a few a few uh, wordless tunes that would that, that would that would really benefit from having Nia's kind of yeah. magic touch on top. It's a really nice texture to incorporate. Yeah, but if anyone could sort of just blend in and just just, yeah. just seep in halfway through the record and just mm-hmm. to just come and go within the record, she she could do it. She's got. I heard some. I listened to some tracks of the trio, and she's yeah. kind of singing whistle tones. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible what she can do. Yeah, amazing. There's somebody so in control of her instrument, it's just it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. I don't see near enough these days. You know, we're going to be teaching together in the summer on a Tristan Mayo's Loire mm-hmm. summer school, so it'd be nice to. In, yeah, in France. Yeah, yeah. So we have, we have, we have actually have a week to hang out and just do mm-hmm. some do some playing together for the first time in ages. I mean, she's yeah. so busy with uh, uh, teaching, coaching stuff right. with actors and and players and everyone, mm-hmm. um, and she's she's all over the world at the moment. Yeah. 
but yeah, she's she's a, she's a really special musician. Yeah, great great writer as well. I, mean, yeah. I, I love her her songs and mm-hmm. the, the process of getting things for for the for the the trio. It's, it's been really nice for me, me and Ross to try and get inside Nia's Nia's world and try. It's quite an unusual lineup. Yeah, I, I do love it. I've been asked to try and do another recording soon with that. She's got loads of new tunes that no one's heard yet. Great. What what kind of felt different about this? Just a, bun- a bunch of new tunes, or did the group feel? Um, updated in some way or? well I've been playing with Ross a lot and Ross seemed like a natural a natural kind of guy to, to bring in to play these things I think at the time I think all, all those tunes were written while I was at film school so I was basically while I was at film school I was, I was, I was basically practicing Becky tunes and writing mm-hmm. new tunes for myself <laughs> making, the, <laughs> making the most of it because, because, because it, was, it was a great collaboration with, with, the, with the film guys yeah um, but the sheer release of just of just writing tunes for music for music's sake mm. w- was quite a big thing at the time yeah. for me. I mean, at film school, it was. Uh, I mean, the power of just a, a fifth, a fifth like a drone going across a scene could be so powerful. So, so you're doing a lot of kind of open open intervals and kind of spacious kind of sound design things. Uh, and then after all that, you want to just get down and write some meaty tunes. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was that was it was, it was slightly rebelling against college in my own head a little bit, writing all these tunes, just just getting things out of my system really. Yeah. I had a little notebook. I've got this little black notebook. I was writing all these tunes. A lot of the tunes are all written in this notebook and, and just, just, just like cut changes and melodies. Yeah, yeah. Postgraduate uh, rebellion. Then. It was a bit, yeah. yeah. Um, how, how did you, generally speaking, and for this album, how, how do you go about writing? Do you write the piano or do you write in your head? Or? Uh, well, for that one, um, for, for, the, for the strut, it was, it was the first time uh, I'd ever used uh, Logic, uh, really. So you uh, wrote the computer for that? I, I did a little bit, yeah. It was, I'd be on, in my little studio in film school. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was—I was actually getting half competent with with Logic, and 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 Sibelius, and um, I had I'd done, done no music technology until this point at all. Right. Um, so so I was, I was doing little demos of the tunes for the guys uh, on Logic for the tunes. So a lot of it was done like that little little kind of little notebook Logic notebook kind of uh, ways of just the demos of the tunes. Playing around with grooves and melodic fragments. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of the time there was some there was some uh, little. little idea that I wanted to build on mm-hmm. um, I mean with with um, I mean just to go through I mean there was um, and with Frizz I mean with the whole the whole thing with that was was um, I'd always loved that um, I'm, a, I'm an old cow, cow hand you know mm-hmm. the Sonny Rollins loping yeah, yeah. thing of that I wanted to get a, a tune that was a bit like that it was really yeah. simple yeah, yeah. Um, just to get something that it had that kind of that rolling triplet kind of cow hand kind of feel to it mm-hmm. uh, Whistleblower that, that was that was like two chords that I wanted to just kind of just just, just try and sort of Take, take as far as I could. That was partly coming out of the film school minimal thing, I suppose, of taking a little element and, and trying to sort of run with that and not feel attention deficit approach to writing where you just think, okay, I've done that, next bit. <laughs> you know, just yeah. uh, just try and, try and take something as far as it can go until it absolutely just kind of releases somewhere. Yeah. Um, and that release on the track is where Nia kind of comes in, really. Was the title a nod to anything? You just, uh, the whistleblower? It just seemed like a funky title for a flute, right. for a flute, oh, <laughs> for a flute yeah, track. Okay, of course. It <laughs> Uh, it wasn't, wasn't political or anything, right? No. Curious, <laughs> anything to do with Edward Snowden? Or something. No. But uh, it could be if you like. Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> um, and the and the Becky tune, the Becky tribute tune, that was um, that that was coming out of a harmonic sequence or a harmonic sort of um, uh, transposing harmonic thing. That was something that I thought Becky might have been into. Mm-hmm. So it starts with like an E major to a C altered, then it goes down. A, it all goes down in perfect fours from there. So E major, C altered, B major, G altered, G flat major, D altered, etc. It goes on this this cyclic path and and it, and it end, ends up on a middle section. That's one of the tunes that came to mind. I was saying you have the same. It's kind of strong, strong melodically enough that for somebody who doesn't have a really intimate understanding of the music, won't think anything of it. But then mm. you're actually thinking that this passage is just going up in a whole tone kind of yeah. thing. But it doesn't sound like that. But it was kind of the, it, was, it was building a bit on the on the major third, uh, the, the augmented thing that Becky was really into. So. Yeah. So the, the the chords go up in triads. Uh, yeah. no, sorry, the triads go up in tones. Right. Um, but it was. Um, but it, it just it was just like a nice little hook that I, I could mm-hmm. have. Becky had just it just passed away, I think, and it was it was just uh, it was just I was thinking of the things that he might have liked to have mm-hmm. to to have been into. And when, yeah. when when Becky would often sing on gigs, he would he had this incredible Zulu nasal singing voice. So when he was really into something, he would, he had this he would do this this unbelievable sort of sort of sine wave of a, of, a, of a sound would, would belt through the band and. and yeah. And whenever he'd sing a tune, it had, it had this such a primal kind of power about it, and that, that's partly why his melodies are so strong. Yeah, um, there's a really kind of ecstatic feeling in that music as well. Um, I don't know whether you felt like that when you wrote it, but in, in these, oh, in that, in that particular tune, possibly, yeah, maybe the release of it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah there was a lot going on at that time. 
mean, a lot of the time when I'm writing tunes, I've, I've, I've got little, I've got my hook book. I've got this folder full of, full of <laughs> the golden hook book. Yeah, it's this ongoing hook book, and yeah. and and and, um, and sometimes I've, I've got this one little section. I've got to try and weld it with. I want to try and make this work somehow. I just put it away, and, and I think originally the strut was going to be a samba. The, the middle section was going to be a samba. That's like, that's like the middle bit, and then yeah. and then I've always unashamedly liked um, Dolly Parton. Uh, nine to five. <laughs> there you have so, it. So nine yeah. to five is like the big influence <laughs> on the struts. Amazing. <laughs> nine to five was one of my favourite movies when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the strut is a, is a, a, a bit of a Dolly Parton and Eddie Harris kind of nod you know, with, with some eighties kind of John Schofield kind mm-hmm. of things in there mm-hmm. as well. But uh, just yeah, just the, just the anthem side of it and and um, trying to get tunes that was people could latch onto. Hopefully, yeah. non musicians could could like as well. Yeah. That's always been a, been a big thing. It's part, partly through my dad as well. He was always mm-hmm. when when you're trying to learn all this this hit muso stuff as a kid, and, and your dad's telling you, "Don't forget about the audience, son. You got to do yeah. something they can be into." Yeah. And, and, and you're always saying, "Oh, dad, leave me alone. I'm trying to, get, <laughs> I'm trying to do this stuff. You know? I'm trying to work out this hip stuff." And, and, but, but then, but it, it does kind of go in there. You think actually, you've got to try and do something that that, that will connect to people, and, and um, you don't have to you don't have to compromise anything. But you just got to you just got to be. Uh, just, just sure about what you're doing, and and and, and direct about it, and and try and be, just try and try and approach it with some kind of enthusiasm, or that will bring mm-hmm. people in. You know, I mean, there's there's so many musicians out there, and you've got you've got to try and you got you got to you got to try to bring people in. It can't mm-hmm. just be musicians' music the whole time. Shall we talk about the big band album? Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was the next thing, really. Yeah. 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 So bringing us up to up to where we are, kind of. Well, we've obviously missed a lot of stuff out because mm. you're a busy man. But your big band has been active for mm. since know, since, since around years. the time this came out. It was, it was, it was uh, I think the first gig was two thousand and eight. Nearly ten years now. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. So we're looking at a ten-year anniversary album then. Nearly yeah, God, the first album is the tenth anniversary album. That's yeah, ridiculous. That's amazing. But um, it's been much anticipated. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, people have asked me for years about doing a record with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's just it's just thinking how how are you going to do it? You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, like, uh, we had a family in two thousand and ten. Our first mm. first first child was born. So it's hard. It's hard finding time to do this stuff, you know. But you've managed it, just about, yeah. yeah. And it's. Uh, I mean, luckily, I got the cool. I got the cool pad. I got. I got a gig's worth of tunes down before mm-hmm. before we had a family. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't done that, there's yeah. no way I could have done it. Um. So I could. I could just build on that slowly. Once I had that down, I mean, now it's a whole, a whole new set of tunes. But 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 when, yeah. we, when we first got the band together, it was it was it was just okay. We just got, I've got to get two sets of tunes down. Mm-hmm. Let's just get this done. You've got something you can fall back on. Yeah. 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 And I'd, I'd always been into it, you know. I, I wasn't, I wasn't really a kind of um, a, a sort of big band nerd, really. I mean, I, it was just, it was just certain things I'd always been drawn to. Mm-hmm. I'd always loved Tad Jones and Mel Lewis and and Oliver Nelson and Don Sebesky, all, all the CTI records that Don Sebesky arranged in the in the seventies. And also, um, I'd always loved Jackie Pastorius's a few things he did with Big Band, uh, mm-hmm. his birthday concert, Herbie Hancock. Even though he didn't do so many like certain like big band things per se but but his just his whole harmonic world and and Wayne Shaw too there's it's more it's more writers I'd been into more than just big band guys I'd, I'd, I'd um uh, one thing I'd always done as a as a as a player I'd just I'd just checking out tunes would be getting to one writer for ages you know uh I'd be really into Bill Evans for a long time and, and just I'd, I'd be I'd be checking out all the tunes and the records and trying mm-hmm. trying to get inside his head and learn his pieces and Monk and yeah. all, all, all the great writers you know and, and that's partly now that's that's a big tool for teaching but 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 first of all, it's just for my own benefit because I just I was just into it. Yeah, it was more just just being into. I mean, I've been through a lot of phases of being into different composers, and and the, the big band seemed like a, a nice way just to kind of just to mm-hmm. to build on the um, the 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 multi horn thing of the septet, and also just have the underpinning thing of the the the, the organ vibe of the quartet could be there as well. The groove things could be there too, and 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 the filmic element would come into it, obviously. Like that big Lala Schifrin thing, and, yeah, and yeah. you know the, the sound of the sound of those Dirty Harry and those things. I, I love all that. <laughs> so it, it's just just a nice way to try and just try and put it all together, and maybe the styles kind of collide all over the place. But it's all it's all my world of of, of tunes, and hopefully it all kind mm-hmm. of hopefully it all kind of flows somehow. We've got some new tunes on yeah on the album. Yeah, it's ne- it's nearly all brand new. Well, not not brand new. Some of it is actually brand new. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of uh, there's quite a few tunes on there that I've deliberately kind of just not recorded and held held back for right. the eventual big band record. Yeah, and so, some of them are are really brand new. I mean, the the ones that were written the few, just a month or two before the recording uh, and arranged really last minute. It's a fantastic group, the cream of the crop of the. Uh, yeah, well, for the, well for the recording, you just try yeah, yeah just try and um, a lot of guys have done the the band. You know, uh, so many players have done it, but trying trying to trying to 
we had one day to record it, so I had to, I had to kind of try and cast it cast it right, you know, for for recording for the focus thing of a one day thing and people and having the stamina with all the players to do eleven tunes in one day. It was a it was a, it was a big ask. There's a lot to do in one day. Yeah, eighty minutes of yeah music yeah. you got there. Yeah, yeah. It was, but we we did it though. It was it was a great day. Yeah, it was it was um, uh, just a, a nice mix of older older pros that I'd always looked up to, like Ian Thomas and and Mark Nightingale, and then guys of my generation, mm-hmm. uh, Barney Dickinson and Sam Main and um, um, Henry Collins again and Steve Fishwick, Trevor Myers, uh, Ross Stanley, Mark Outram, guys of my kind of generation. Yeah, and then, and then some younger guys as well who who um, who some of which I'd, I'd taught at college a little bit at the academy mm-hmm. on, on the degree course. I mean, I've done ensembles with them and a few one-to-one lessons with them, uh, and they've ended up being these, these, these like just these badass players, you know. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so Nadine Tiamori and James Gardner Bateman, Tom Walsh, uh, they're just fantastic, you know. Yeah. Richard Shepherd, they're, they're they're great, great, great players. They're really pliable, flexible musicians. You can sort of blend in with anything. And Tom Walsh is just a great jazz guy and just a phenomenal lead trumpet player as well. He just mm-hmm. he's got the just a Really nice way of just um get just pacing that dynamics just right to to lead a to lead a band without without just blasting it you know uh, so just a really nice mix of guys and yeah and I have, and Ian Thomas was just an absolute legend on on the recording as well I can't say enough good words about about him he was he was um, I worked on the tunes with him before the session and and mm-hmm. um, and he was he was there before anyone else and and he had he had his he knew all the tunes and, he, and having a presence like Ian Thomas just just that this knew, knew the, te- the tempos, the tunes, everything was just sorted. He, he could make the whole thing just feel easy. And, and a good friend of mine, Nick Smart, who, yeah. who runs the Academy mm-hmm. Jazz Course, uh, he he directed the session too. So so I could just play and he could direct it. Okay. Uh, and then an old teacher from college who now is is a major figure in, in Hollywood, arranging, orchestrating all the big film sessions, mm-hmm. John Ashton Thomas. He he was there as well. He came down. He was free that day, so he came down to just have an eye on the scores and just be an extra pair of ears upstairs. Right. So, uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a really kind of it was just a really solid, great team of guys and, and Ben Lambden, great mm-hmm. engineer, who, who kind of looked after the setting up the whole thing and yeah, you know, it was a good collaborative collaborative process. The whole thing. Yeah. Did it feel very different not directing it? You you direct it um, on, on a gig, gig I would normally you? yeah I'd normally yeah. jump around and in front of the yeah. band on a gig. Um, I think for the recording, I had to kind of just, just, just try and think, yeah. think about the, uh, uh, I guess my my role a little bit more on the on, on the album, try and try and yeah, you fix things a bit more as well. Sort of people knew what they were going to blow on and mostly, still, mostly there are a few yeah. things, the few times where, where as as we were going through the day, it might it might be a case of oh you haven't played yet, <laughs> right? <laughs> we need to hear some of your stuff. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so so a few there are a few last minute solos right. and some of the tunes that I thought were. As, as we went through the day, we sort of paced the day like like a, like a, a gig stretched out over ten hours, uh, try and pace it pace it in a way that would kind yeah. of just contrasting tunes. And, and everybody's featured at some point. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I think everyone gets their kind of shining moment at some point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, reflective of you. You are such a humble musician, and uh, you're always keen to uh, talk about other people. Yeah. So it's great that you're doing. Well, that. I get a lot of inspiration from those guys. I mean, I yeah, mean, it's yeah. it's the. It's the things you're into. I mean, I mean the 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 recordings you've grown up with, and then and then there's the contemporary things that you you're soaking up, and then it's the guys you're playing with. It's, that's mm-hmm. that's that's probably the main thing that kind of mm-hmm. rubs off on you. Really, is is how someone plays a melody next to you, or how a drummer kind of reacts to a certain thing, or like Ross Stanley. I mean, you can't say enough about him. He's just a. I mean, I, I can't. I don't know anyone with with the the, the sponge like thing he's got of, of just immersing himself in what's going on around him. You can you can just you can just soak up the uh, the influences around him so easily, um, and 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 just and just channel that through what he's doing, and, and mm-hmm. he, he always generates a team sound, no matter what he's playing in, whatever group it is. And on and on the big band record, it's just kind of it's just incredible how much how much he uh, how much he generates in the comping. It's just uh, there's always something happening. There's like this energy crackling away all the time. You'll you'll never just just check in and play what's just what's required. It's all there. He's, he's mm-hmm. playing total kind of respect to what the the tunes. He's trying to present the tunes on a, on, a, on a record, but there's always an extra thing. There's always a golden extra thing he's put in there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fantastic. So look out for the um, CD and yeah. uh, vinyl, yes. hopefully. Yeah, um, at some point. At some point. The gig launch, yeah. King's Place, on yeah. September the 11th. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 2017. Yeah. In case you're listening to this in 2050. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Gareth, after the big band launch, have you got plans? You got anything in mind? Uh, just, just life as usual. Teaching, family, chaos. 
Are you thinking of another graveyard album yeah. at some point? Because yeah. you've slightly um, updated the the group yeah. for that. Yeah, recently it's been more of a thing with bass instead of just being yeah. just being an organ band. Gives Ross a lot of flexibility. It means the music can just be slightly more um, less flexible, really. You know, yeah. you get, and, and I, I just missed having the bass after a while. Mm-hmm. I love having an organ, but but uh, after a bit, I, I really wanted to have like a strong bass and drum sort of team. Uh, so we've done we've done a lot of gigs with that mm-hmm. um, the last few years. And uh, so, yes, I've got a whole load of new tunes just on the boil in the hookbook. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting a few, th- I've got about eight or nine tunes on the boil at once at the moment. And I think they all sound the same. So I've, I've got to try and, I've got to try. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to try and, um, yeah, edit them down a little bit and right. work on, they're, on, they're a work in progress. Mm-hmm. But they're almost there, yeah. We'll look out for that as well. So catch Gareth around London, probably internationally as well. If you, oh, we'll see. If you can, yeah, get a record. <laughs> Get the vinyl with the big band when it comes out. Gareth, thanks so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's Thank been you. a pleasure to have you. Turquoise Coconut is a London-based independent record label. For more information about releases, videos, collaborations and more, go to turquoisecoconut.com or find us on Facebook. Turquoise Coconut. New music for curious ears.